Hi, it's Delegate Mike McKay, District 1C, serving Allegheny and Washington counties. You're listening to my go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing very well. Natasha is out today on assignment. Michael, any idea where she is? I, I think she's landed someplace lovely and warm. Didn't didn't quite make it as far as Guam, uh, but we'll we'll be working on that. All right, we're, we're still working right. on that. Right. Uh, the, for our listeners, once you start hear us, you know, slinging mattresses and razor blades and stuff like that, you know, we're we're on the Guam track. But I, for now, you know, she's doing fine. Yeah, I got to tell you, just I did buy a Quip toothbrush over the weekend. I ordered one, so right. I'll All let right. you know. We'll see. Yeah, All right. That's a big podcast advertiser. Anyway, today on the podcast, we will talk about a historic day yesterday in the Maryland House of Delegates with the election of a new speaker. We'll get into some nuts and bolts on the Kerwin blueprint bill, some unanswered questions there. We'll talk about the latest in Baltimore City. Mayor Catherine Pugh has announced that she is resigning from her post. And then we'll talk about what we are looking forward to moving ahead. Michael, let's start with the historic day in the Maryland House of Delegates. Big surprise yesterday, right? What a day, right? right. I mean, for for those of us who have a handicapper's mentality, the, the morning line on Adrian Jones becoming speaker was a relatively generous one. We knew that she was among the people expressing interest. She had a lot of credentials as a possible leader, but all the all the arrows were pointing in the direction of other candidates and she had thrown her weight behind Derek Davis, the chair of the economic matters committee. But after a tumultuous day, she ends up being the consensus candidate and everybody in the house lines up behind her. That was a big twist and a really big deal. Right. And the history of course, is that she becomes the first woman and the first African-American to hold the position of speaker. So certainly a big deal. And it shouldn't be a surprise that she had thrown her hat into the ring initially because she had served so admirably as Speaker Pro Tem under the late Michael Bush. And she did such a great job at the end of session. We heard sure, such high right. praises. Right. I mean, everybody had her on the winner's list from this session as helping helping the House of Delegates sort of stay the course and finish up their, their final business through the last couple of weeks while the, the Speaker himself was ill. I mean, we didn't realize that that was going to be the end of his tenure. But I think you know she brought that group together and kept everybody on track and received really high marks from everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so no surprise that as things got complicated in this, you know, this you know fair bit of palace intrigue with the House of Delegates and and the Democratic Caucus and so forth and how that was going to come together, it's not a real surprise that she ended up back in that conversation for the top job. Right. So there was a lot of intrigue. There were reporters camped out in this oh, narrow geez, little yeah. hallway in between the Republicans <laughs> and the House caucuses yesterday, you know, the, tweeting like, oh, I hear applause. I hear laughing. That right. must mean something. <laughs> it was literally hours and hours of that. Yeah. But you say we say it was like it was like a Pope watch, right? Some, I mean, was. someone someone did the white smoke the white picture, smoke. yeah. So, I mean, it was it was a lot like that. I I thought one of the funniest things was all the reporters. At one point, they just sort of started assembling all their microphones around uh, around one spot. 
assuming that somebody eventually is going to come out and tell us something. So let's have a place for a press event. And whether that's going to be in two minutes or two hours, we'll be ready for it. But when everybody, you know, suddenly it's like a crowd attracts a crowd, right? Once a couple reporters put up their microphones, everybody gets their microphone up. Now there's 25 of them and there's no one to speak because there's no news. It's only one o'clock and you know, the news was supposed to be at 11 in the morning. But anyway, took a while. <laughs> yeah, five hours uh, in Democratic caucus. And Michael, we say that this was a surprise and you mentioned earlier it was, it was Derek Davis and Maggie McIntosh. Everyone around town assumed it was between those two. Let's talk about what happened and how they settled on uh, Adrian Jones as speaker. Well, I mean, if the the twist here is there's a long-standing tradition in most legislative bodies that the majority party is going to select one of their own to preside over the body. Right. And so what typically happens is the majority party selects a person from within their ranks mm-hmm. and then they all vote for that person. And that is what, that's what typically happens in the house of delegates, but in most state legislatures, you know, around the country and in most legislative bodies around the world, you end up with a working coalition or something along those lines. And that's the person who gets the lead, the, the vote of the majority group. Right. So here we had a twist where Derek Davis, uh, a well-respected and very popular and accomplished committee chair, had received some tacit and then direct support from the minority party. The Republican Party sort of came out and said, we'd be willing to vote for Derek Davis. And that changes the math. Right. Because if if a, a certain subset of the Democrats were willing to go for Derek Davis plus all the Republicans, he could fashion a majority on the floor of the House without necessarily having a majority of the Democratic Party. He's a Democrat, but he could have done it as a coalition candidate. And that certain faction would be the Legislative Black Caucus, who most At least in part. Which, right. Yeah. They, they said, we support Derek Davis. There were some splits within the caucus, but for the, for the most part, the Black Caucus was behind Derek Davis. And of course, Maggie McIntyre. Tosh had her supporters in her corner as well. So there was really a split amongst the caucus. And the thing that was unknown for all of us who were just watching this unfold was how many members of the Democratic caucus were inclined to vote for Delegate Davis if it were a matter between the two of them, but still would say, I subscribe to this ideology that I should go for the Democratic, that the caucus supported candidate. Right. I don't want consternation within my own party. So let's be unified on the floor. So we came into Wednesday as decision day, not quite knowing whether there were 10 or maybe 30 Democrats who felt that way among those who might have preferred Derek Davis between the two. Right. And that's what was uncertain as the day went on. And I I don't think we ever really got a perfect beat on that number only to know, I think reading between the lines, there were a fair number of Democrats who felt uncomfortable by the idea of the potential for a party split and for what seemed like emerging hard feelings. If things go either of those two directions, you end up with some pe- some people walk out of the room sort of gravely disappointed, either personally or ideologically. And that's not ideal for a group that's trying to work together as a team. And you have a fractured party. And of course, none of the Democrats wanted that to happen. But I think you're absolutely right that that was the sentiment. And that's why I think it took five hours. And eventually it got to the point where 
The caucus could not make a decision. Uh, Delegate Davis and Delegate McIntosh had a meeting. They tried to reach a compromise. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was a bunch of cheering and applause. And the Democrats came out and said, we've selected Adrian Jones. And that was a big, big surprise right. because she had last week thrown her support behind Derek Davis. Right. So, so, so it sounds as though when Adrian became the person to discuss, the room sort of turned around and a lot of people said, that's the way to go mm-hmm. because she's known, she's respected. She's a known quantity in lots of ways. I mean, she's not just the speaker pro tem, but I mean, she's been the chair of the capital budget subcommittee and this, this is kind of inside baseball stuff, but the person who oversees capital budget is somebody who has to make an awful lot of relationships with the rank and file of both parties. Because Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, you don't learn about in the, in the high school civics test textbook, but the capital budget ends up being a, a, something that's really important to an awful lot of people in the small scale, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're working, you got that duck decoy museum in your district and they need 400 grand for the little expansion that they're, and they're going to do their matching funds. They really need that state funding for it. You go to bat for that project and that might be your single most important accomplishment of the whole year. Absolutely. And, and these capital funds for these projects are very well received back home. Uh, the, the idea of managing that and tending to all those, you know, all those mouths in the nest to feed, that's a big deal. So, and certainly you know, it, it lets her know all of the members and, and develop these relationships. Right, right. So there, there aren't a lot of people who came out of that conversation saying, well, I just never really got to know Adrian Jones. No, no, no. Almost everybody knows the capital budget chair, the speaker pro tem, and someone who's been a leader the entire time of Mike Bush's speakership. Absolutely. I mean, she's been down here for a long time. She knows a lot of people. So the party came together. And also, you know, I think it's significant that Delegate Davis and McIntosh both nominated uh, right. yeah, Adrian the, the, Jones yeah. on the floor. Right. The so. nomination in the second and both of them, I mean, they no one has to scramble for good things to say about Madam Speaker Adrian Jones. That's right. Madam right. Speaker That's has right. a nice ring to it. It does. <laughs> and so let's talk about how we move forward here. Um, I think the sentiment seems to be that Madam Speaker will be great in her new role, right? We've, we've talked right. about that a little bit. Let's talk about the relationship with Mako and the counties. And obviously, Baltimore County, you would think, benefits a bit from having the Speaker uh, from their from their county. Yeah, I, I think um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, sure. Is it, is, is it a good thing to have a presiding officer from your jurisdiction who knows that neighborhood? Of course, that's a benefit. But I don't think there's anyone who would think, oh, now that now that Delegate Jones is Speaker Jones, suddenly we're going to see, you know, giant piles of riches heading in the direction of her district or her county. I don't I don't think anyone believes that that's going to be the nature of her leadership. Right, like UNBC so, right. is not going to triple in size. Right. No, no, no. Is that what you're saying? I don't I don't I don't think we're going to see things right. of that nature happen. Um, what I what I do think is. She's she's someone from a relatively large jurisdiction, but I mean it's a big diverse jurisdiction. I mean, I mean Baltimore County has downtown areas. They've got areas inside the Baltimore Beltway, all out to you know big wide swaths of horse country and wineries and agritourism and so forth. Right. So that's a jurisdiction that's got something in common with basically every part of Maryland, and. 
that's not, I mean, that's going to be appealing to a lot of people in, in, in the legislature to say, you know, she comes from somewhere, someplace that isn't totally far removed from the, from what I represent. Absolutely. And in terms of, of what we can expect, you know, yeah. in terms of the, of the body. And we, yeah. we talked about last week, I think a bit, a lot of the Maggie McIntosh supporters wanted the party to move to the left. Some of the Derek Davis supporters maybe wanted to stay the course or move a bit to the right. With uh, Madam Speaker Jones, what do you expect now? She was she was the the pro tem under Mike Bush, right. and we all know how Mike Bush ran things in Annapolis. Do we expect the same, or what do you think? I I, I think the smart money is probably that she represents sort of a vote of confidence in the way the House of Delegates has been running is more or less a good thing. Okay. And so I mean I mean, surely she is gonna have her own thoughts and priorities and we will see that over time. But I don't I don't think I don't think anybody is expecting that we're going to see, you know, massive turnover in leadership or sort of philosophy or strategy or that sort of thing. I mean, she will be someone who's involved in things like the budget negotiation with the Senate. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's going to be a lead player in back and forth with the governor on, on coordinating the governor's legislative agenda, but also, you know, things that are priorities for the legislature. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and she'll be, I think, very up to the task of being the face and the voice of the body. But I don't think anyone would expect from this, oh boy, now, you know, my long dead bill is suddenly on a fast track or vice versa. Suddenly, you know, we were, we were expecting this to happen, but now that's off the table because she's going to be a totally different kind of leader. I don't see that. I mean, maybe I'll eat those words in a year or two's time, but um, there are some things that do have to happen, even if there's not a bold change in philosophy. She vacates not one but two jobs that matter an awful lot. Right. So, of course, those two jobs being Speaker Pro Tem and Chair of the Capital Budget Subcommittee uh, on the Appropriations Committee, those are obviously two very, very important positions, and they have to be filled. Right. And I think the I think the smart money is that we'll end up with two different people in those roles, both of which will be very much sought after. And so in, in, that I agree with you there. In terms of committee membership and committee chairs, much of the same. Do we expect you know any movement amongst committees or amongst committee chairs now? Yeah, I I, I don't know. Um, as far as rank and file membership, uh, that happens from time to time in the middle of a term, and maybe with a turnover in the speaker's office, is it possible that? random legislators might say, you know what, all things equal, I'd rather go over here than there. Or there are some people who might, you know, be, you know, deserving of a reward in some, you know, in some fashion. I mean, that's the speaker's prerogative. So that certainly could happen. I don't think that would shock anyone. Um, will we see high leadership changes? Don't know. Uh, you know, we'll have, we'll have time for that to sort out. And, and the, the new speaker, I think she can take her time. There's nothing urgent. Uh, you know, we're not going to see, it's unlikely we're going to see the, the legislature convene before January. If they have other work to do, she can she can stand and and swear in a new member of the House of Delegates in in District Thirty A. Mm-hmm. So you know, as a practical matter, she's got some time to sort out what she'd like to do. And so, this being a compromise, I think we talked about backroom deals being made, and yeah. you know, people having their feelings hurt. 
when she woke up yesterday, and this is the first thing I thought, and then she said it on the floor, she had no idea right. that she would be standing up there being sworn in as the first woman and African American speaker in right. Maryland's history. Right. You know, I, I don't. I, I so that in itself to me is crazy yeah. uh, that you, she woke up and had no idea. But um, in terms of, I mean, it's also, it's, it, I mean, it's it's crazy, but it's also. Like it's fantastic it in is, a way, right? It is. It is. It's amazing. <laughs> right, I mean, I right. would hope that I wore my favorite, you know, suit. <laughs> no or, fooling. You know, you know, who knows, right? right? You're gonna. She was in Vox today. I so there's a cover story on Vox, mm-hmm. so she's right. everywhere. Yeah. But um, so maybe with Speaker Jones being the compromise candidate, you didn't have to make a lot of these deals where we'd see changes in committee chairmanship and vice chairs and things of that nature. Right. Seems that way, and I mean, just for the moment back to your comment about from the county government perspective and from Mako's perspective, I mean, she has been a really receptive advocate to county issues. Um, we have come to her on things in the capital budget or things that were priorities for counties in the past. She's been very receptive, supportive. She's come to lots of our conferences and events and been a speaker, moderator, that sort of, that sort of person. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say she singled us out because I think there's a long list of stakeholders who would be saying the same thing that she's always had an open door and an open ear so i mean that's that's great but she's she's someone that mako i mean we will look forward to working with her and we won't be alone and feeling that way no we're certainly not alone we have seen high praises from just about everybody around town wishing her congratulations so certainly a great step forward for the state all right so with that we're going to go ahead and take a break when we come back we'll talk about some open-ended questions with the kerwin blueprint bill We'll get into what we're looking forward to and talk a little bit about the bill signing this week. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Some open-ended questions with the Kerwin Blueprint Bill, and you wrote a fantastic piece on the blog today. So it's kind of a mixed thing because you and I feel a little bit of fatigue as we continue to talk about school funding and we mention Britt Kerwin. I mean, his his ears have to warm up just about every Thursday afternoon as we're recording because it seems like we're talking about this guy all the time. But this is one of the most important issues on the plate, right? It's it's a generational type issue. So, and that's why, and to the, you know, the feedback we get from listeners is, yeah, we keep covering this stuff because I, there's a thirst for it. So, okay, um, today in the blog, uh, we wrote up a piece talking about this year's bill, and I thought it was important to try and lay out. There's some loose ends here, mm-hmm. some things that are uncertain. Everybody's talked about the the bill's passed. You know, it's it's already in a bow, and everybody's talking about their teacher raises and so forth. But like, not so fast. Not all the ink is dry on this, right? So there are some questions. The the number one question being, okay, the General Assembly passed the bill. Is this bill for sure going to happen? Right. And the answer is maybe. Right. So there's a there's a two 
two-part answer to that, and the first part is the one we mostly should skip over. It's not obvious. So the easy question is, well, gee, is the governor going to sign the bill? The governor could still veto this bill. Right. He's held two bill signings so far, right. and this he has not signed yeah, the bill. This hasn't been on the list. So we don't yet know what the governor might do. So on a certain level, it's like, oh, gee, maybe the bill won't even happen. Maybe the governor vetoes it. Mm-hmm. So with the legislature out of session, he's got a couple options to let it become law. One is he signs it. He says why. He says why he supports it and he's behind it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes law. He signs it. They have a you know big ceremony and photo- photograph and all that kind of stuff. Great. The other option, which this governor has done a few times on issues that he hasn't been that enamored with, is he can let the bill become law by just not acting after a certain number of days. It becomes law without his signature. Now, that's symbolic. Right. It means you don't have the fanfare. You don't have a press event where the governor talks about how wonderful the bill is. But it still becomes law after a certain number of days. You close the book and it's, practically speaking, the same thing as if he had signed the bill. The third option, obviously, in this state, like every other state, the governor can veto a bill. He doesn't have line item veto authority like a lot of state, a lot of states governors do. But he can veto the entire bill and say – I'm unsatisfied with something about it. Now, we know earlier in session, this governor had some reservations about the breadth of the sort of initial Kerwin bill. Right. And we saw the General Assembly add in some accountability measures that the governor had asked for. And I did not hear from the governor after that whether or not that was suitable for him. But, but they, they moved in his they did. direction. They did. So he, he said he was concerned about the money and he was very concerned about accountability. Right. And lo and behold, soon after we saw big parts of the governor's own accountability bill, you know, those concepts s- suddenly got grafted into the centerpiece bill. Right. An inspector and, general right. and would oversee sort of right, all right. this money and make sure that it's being spent wisely. Right. So, so I mean, that clearly was a move to make this more attractive for the governor to, to sign the bill. Um, I think it makes it less likely, but not absolutely certain that the governor would veto the bill. So, even if the chances are low that the governor would veto the bill, what would that look like? Right. And I think, I think it won't matter. <laughs> my, my, my short version is you look at the legislative support for the bill and the interest in it starting in this coming budget year. Uh, if the governor in a week or two's time says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and veto that bill. It didn't do enough on accountability or it's too much money or whatever his grievance might be. If he vetoes that bill, the votes look like they're there to override it. And I think the legislature would say, we're going to have another one day special session. We'll convene it for you know one week after the veto. The votes are already there. Just come to town, push the button and everybody goes home. And, and you make it a big show. Yeah. I mean, right? you'll have a press event and you'll, you'll, you'll have the teachers gear up their buses again and, and so forth, but you'll have all the stakeholders come to town and try and put the pressure back on the governor. So, even if the governor were to veto the bill, I think that would be a short-term sort of hiccup in this process. It'd probably be a quick override. That'd be my guess. So you get so you you don't think they'd wait and come back in January and override? You think they'd they'd make an event of it, which makes sense to me as well. So that connects to the back half question, mm-hmm. and the back half question is: 
if the bill goes into effect, what about this year's money? Now, right. You, you, right. And I, you and I have talked about this a little bit, and this is a little nuanced for folks who don't know the details of how the Maryland Constitution is written. The short version is the legislature can't add money to the budget. Right. So the only way this money actually gets spent in FY20, that's this coming July 1, the only way that money gets spent is if the governor puts the money into the budget. So for counties who right now are very busily assembling their their fiscal 20 budgets, especially those that are that are wanting to meet that 3% teacher salary increase requirement so that they can qualify for the extra state funding, that's sort of an unknown, right? The governor has to put this money in the budget because the General Assembly, just because they passed a bill, the money isn't there, but they have enabled the governor to introduce budget amendments, and that would fund the bill for this year for fiscal 20. Right. So the the legislature has sort of identified where the money would come from, and they've given explicit authority for the governor by way of a process called a budget amendment. Right. They and you know, the legislature gets a say in that sort of thing, but they've they've signaled we're cool with this, and here's where the money would be. So the point is, it doesn't it doesn't put the budget out of balance if he provides the funds. That's a big. That's a big point. Right, right. So so it's just a matter of is he willing to make the commitment in the first year? The out years are, are a requirement, assuming this bill becomes law, that they can require him to fund the money in FY21 and 22. This is just about the first year. If he doesn't fund it, it doesn't happen. They've got political pressure. They've got some polls that say these things are popular and so forth, but they don't have the constitutional authority to force it to happen. So the General Assembly has basically set up everything for the governor. Here's where the money will come from. Here's what we need you to do. He just needs to introduce right. that that those amendments to make this happen for fiscal 20. Right. So you've got you've got teachers and school boards and county governments all sort of some combination of wringing their hands a little bit about this uncertainty, mm-hmm. but it looks like most jurisdictions, honestly, are assuming that the money's going to be there. Right. They're assuming, I mean, in particular, I mean, the thing that's most in play in terms of building your budget for the current year is do, do the counties go ahead and fund enough in the school budget this year to give the teachers a 3% raise that would qualify their school board for this extra layer of state funds that goes back for more teacher enhancements? Right. And that, that is what everyone is grappling with, right? right? And that's so that's carrot, one of the central right? points. Right? I mean, our, our, our analogy of carrots versus sticks, this, year was all, this year's bill was all about carrots. And the big carrot is if you do right by your teachers in your budget, the state will come up with a little bit of extra – and it goes back particularly for your new hires and and first few year teachers to try and keep them around. Now, the school boards will say, look, we know that the bill was passed. It, should the governor not veto the bill, but also not include funding for fiscal 20, the school boards are saying, look, this bill mandates that we do a lot of things and that's going to cost money. So if we don't have the money in fiscal 20, you're going to have to give it to us counties. And, right. and that is a problem. And that's where this unknown really comes into play. All right. It's so... I mean, we're all sort of at a fork in the road, mm-hmm. and I think I think I think the the finger in the breeze among most jurisdictions is sort of operate as though we knew the governor was going to do this, and 
if we get word otherwise, that might change our course. But for now, let's assume the governor follows through, provides the funds. It's a limited thing. And then, you know, there might be a larger debate about the 10-year plan that would be in next year's state legislation. I can imagine there will be a larger debate. Yeah, but this is the small piece. And, you know, as a practical matter, they've tried to meet him halfway on accountability measures. They seem to have made the gesture in that direction, but we just don't know at this point. So so it's it's kind of a wait and see, but most folks are working on plan A, even though they've got folded away on the desk somewhere is plan B. Sure. You know they do because they're budget <laughs> folks and they, right. they don't like to assume anything. So they have plan B, C, D, E, and F, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably. I'm sure. Okay, so loose ends there. We'll keep you updated with what the governor decides to do or not do as we move ahead. And now, Michael, let's get into Baltimore City. Uh, Mayor Pugh has announced that she will resign as mayor. And this has been an ongoing story. This has been going on for months, it seems, back into the legislative session. Let's talk just nuts and bolts here about what that means and what we can look forward to ahead. And so – so as it turns out, many of us are learning the ins and outs of the Baltimore City Charter. Yes. So that's that's the document that's the equivalent to the Constitution of the United States or the Constitution of the State of Maryland for jurisdictions that have their home rule under a charter form of government. It works the same way. Mm-hmm. So the city government has a charter. Uh, this is decades and decades and decades old. These are provisions that go way, way, way back. But as it turns out, the the process in Baltimore City is peculiar. Um, in other jurisdictions, you have sort of a selection process for a replacement county executive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen that happen in Anne Arundel County not that long ago, in Harford County before that, uh, in other charter counties where a county executive has stepped down during his or her term, the, pro- the, the progression involved sort of a selection process. Right. Here, uh, the person who ran citywide for president of the, 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 the city council. President Jack Young. Right. So that's, that's Bernard Jack Young. Mm-hmm. Um, he becomes the mayor in full automatically. So, so he's been serving as right. ex officio mayor now until, since the right. mayor took a leave of absence. Right. So that's their term of, term of art is the ex officio mayor as sort of an acting capacity while she has been out citing illness. Um, so while that was a temporary circumstance, he was still nominally still the head of the city council, but he was acting in the capacity as mayor. Right. Uh, Sharon Green Middleton, a member of the city council, she was voted by her peers as the vice president of the council. She didn't run citywide for a special seat. She ran in a district. Right. Only the council president runs citywide. Right. So – um, so the, the structure of government question is is peculiar here to the city, and I think we're already seeing the beginnings of some conversation about perhaps changing the city charter to have a, a different replacement process right, right. in the future. That would require the voters of Baltimore City agreeing to a, a charter amendment, which could happen, mm-hmm. but that would be a ballot decision, not just a city council decision. Right. So nuts and bolts-wise, we know uh, Bernard Jack Young – has been ex officio mayor. He so it went when the mayor resigned today. He automatically became mayor. There doesn't need to be a swearing in process. He just assumes that position automatically. Yeah, so as of the effective date of her resignation, right. he becomes mayor, and then the council has a process to select a new president. So it's not just the vice president who automatically assumes yeah, that. That's position. not an automatic ascension there. That is a decision for the council to make as to who would take that leadership role within the council. Uh, we have seen this before. 
before. Um, and, and, and so we've seen this in the city with the city council. And sometimes, you know, it, it, sometimes it has been a matter of the sitting vice president becomes the president of the council. Right. That's the council's decision to make. And, and that's their leadership matter. So, so those are the nuts and bolts in the city of Baltimore. It probably leaves some people feeling like that's not an ideal process. And in, in all candor, there were some actors within the city of Baltimore who were scratching their heads saying, why is it that this, you know, this, this situation lasted as long as it did? And that's because there is right. no process to remove right. the mayor unless the mayor commits a crime, uh, breaks the law. Other than the governor right. and the governor's involvement, um, I think politically requires a higher standard than, you know, than, than a, a level of concern. So right. it could have gotten to that point, but it hasn't. So that's where we are now. We'll see a transition in Baltimore City, and we may see a longer term decision in the city about how to make this process different or better going forward. Okay, so we'll leave it there. And Michael, I want to get into a little bit about, we had a big bill signing this week. One of our initiative bills was on the list. The governor signed Mako's Next Generation 911 initiative bill. This is a big deal for counties, for public safety, and it was quite a show here on Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the the bill signing days are sort of a pageantry unto themselves. You have all sorts of people who spent those 90 days rubbing elbows and sometimes button heads Mm -hmm. and so forth. And now that's behind us. And now here you are. You've got this giant whiteboard. I mean, it's it's, it's a whole scene. It's a right. It does feel it feels very much like a cattle call, right? And and they announce a bill, and someone has a little placard or a clipboard or whatever, and you all gather behind her. She walks you up, and you stand in line. And you get your picture taken. They hand you a pen, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's I, I don't know. It's a process that everybody should go through a few times to sort of. I don't know. It's almost like it's a closure to to having put a lot of investment into even a tiny issue. You show up and I'm getting that pen. I'm getting that picture. The governor's gonna gonna thank me, and I'm gonna shake Adrian Jones' hand. This is a big day for me, and I'm I'm getting my big day. I'm driving down from Hagerstown to do this. I mean, I know on this bill during (laughs) session, all I kept thinking was, I'm just I'm putting myself. Usually, I think of myself in Guam, and it calms me down, like on the beach. In this case, I'm thinking, I just all I need is that picture of the bill signing right. and it will be over and we'll have done it and it is closure it's pageantry right and some bills you see one person up there getting the pain right. with it and some bills right. you see you can't even fit everybody in the photo well, well for i mean th- that was us right, right? i mean right. On, on our 911 bills we couldn't jam all the people it comfortably into the photograph so we ended up two and three layers deep i mean i'm used to being a back row <laughs> guy for photographs anyhow because i'm relatively tall and so you know you can see basically my eyebrows and my forehead in the picture that's pretty much what i get out of the deal you're better in the picture and that's as it ought to be because you put a lot of blood sweat and tears into into this legislation but it's it's a big day the reason so many people came to town to get this back is the people who found out one day in advance that this bill was going to get signed they said cancel my plans i'm coming to annapolis because this is a big deal these are people who are saving lives they're running the call centers who take the 911 calls and they know next generation is going to help us find the people it's going to get us the better technology we're going to receive what they send that's a really big deal to them as professionals it's a huge deal so so i mean 
okay, that's fine. You know, sometimes there's these little pet bills and it, it changes a comma or it changes a word in the law. And that one person comes down and gets their picture taken. And that's, that's a big day for her. Right. This was a lot of people excited about this bill. Cause we're going to save lives. You and I were in the back, but <laughs> the, the people who should have been in the front were, and those are all the people in uniform. And also Carol Hen. Uh, this bill is named after Carl Hen, who was struck by lightning and wasn't able to get in touch with 911 in time. He unfortunately died. Carol Hen, his wife, was at the bill signing front and center. Right. And that was really great to see. And I had a, a, an opportunity to talk with her for a long time after. And it really puts things in perspective and reminds me why I do this work and why it's so important. Right. So. I mean, I mean, it's it, it, to use a sports phrase, sometimes it is kind of appropriate to go spike the football. Yes. I mean, we worked really hard on that and we had dozens and dozens of people in the county community who cared a lot. I'm glad a lot of them got in that photograph. Yeah, they all worked really hard. They deserve to be in the picture. Yep. So good day overall. Yep. Okay, Michael, let's talk about what you are looking forward to. Uh, there's something going on this weekend, isn't there, as we sit here on Thursday in Annapolis? This, this is the month of May, and, you know, the third Saturday in May, we have a lovely race, the Preakness, in this great state of Maryland. Yes. Well, they have this fun little prep race two weeks before the Preakness, which is sort of a way to, to sort out who's good enough to make it to Baltimore. And I'm interested in seeing what happens over in Louisville this week. And we lost the favorite. Uh, we're looking at weird weather. I'm excited and looking forward to the Kentucky Derby. Maybe you've heard of it. I think uh, we're all looking forward to it. I know you've heard of it. I've heard of it. Michael, any uh, any derby picks before we move on? I know I have one. I'll let you go first. Well, I don't, I don't know. I'm interested now in – so now that you're becoming Mr. Fiscal and you're watching all these issues and so forth, you spent all this all this session – you know, looking at tax bills, I mean, there's a there's a horse in this year's Kentucky Derby mm. named Tax. I know. How can it just you not seems love it, like right? you, I mean, I mean, you don't have to be a pro tax guy to have some money on the horse named Tax. I don't know. Maybe that bill is cut out for you, Kevin. I uh, well, I'm all over Tacitus. That's my horse. <laughs> I, I've liked him the whole time. So um, we've lost the favorite, but it should be fun. You the mean, weather will be weird. You mean Belmont Stakes winner Tacitus? Look, so I wonder who the horse expert <laughs> is on this podcast. It's Michael. Anderson for anyone who didn't realize it, but uh, it should be a fun race. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so with that, we will leave it there. We'll discuss uh, the Derby results maybe when we come back next week. But until then, Michael and Kevin signing off. Of course, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps get our message out. We will talk to you soon. <laughs>